is Terry Bradshaw, quarterback, Pittsburgh Steelers. Touched by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time. And it's ABC's Monday Night Baseball, live from Fenway Park in Boston, Massachusetts. Fading, looking, looking, looking. He's under the gun. He's fired, he throws. This is baseball, Major League Baseball, and this is Mel Allen. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the January, no, it's February, February, February 4th. I don't even know good what job. day it is, month, year, yeah, whatever. Good job. It's February of 1974. No, well, the, the issue is, <laughs> the issue that we're uh, discussing this week on the Past Our Prime podcast is the February 4th, 1974 issue with Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier on the cover, and joining me, as always, on the POP podcast, Bill Mahoney. Billy, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Good, doing good. Real well, let's get going. Nice. And uh, your brother, Mark uh, Hoffman? Exactly. Yeah, See, I, I, I didn't go with a last name this time. I, Just going yeah, with Billy. Yes. <laughs> we have no idea. Well, I'm changing my name to Mark Mahoney. So okay. okay. There so you go. Fine. Wonderful. You go. Irish boy. Wonderful. <laughs> and just a, a, a reminder of basically what the premise of this show is, is uh, three, hmm, how do I put it? Older gentlemen who um distinguished veterans distinguished all right veterans i like experienced come on um look back at sports from 50 years ago through the lens of old issues of sports illustrated we've uh gotten off to a really good start last month bob thomas and ed white how great were they um follow that up with peter vesey talking about dr j then we had the zonk larry zonka off of his uh, mvp of winning super bowl eight and then larry farmer last week was sensational so um looking forward to our guest today mark cram jr who's going to talk about the fight that his father mark cram senior covered for sports illustrated and is the author of the book smoking joe the life of joe frazier mark cram jr uh, looking forward to that in just a few moments but i'm going to start off with the uh, scorecard section of the um of the magazine and first up is this british psychologist who did some research about uh, men and women and how they uh, affected each other when it came to gambling in casinos. Billy? Well, I mean, I think we know how this works, but she said that men are three times as lucky when they have a lady on their side compared to men that are gambling alone. Why do you think that is, Mark? I, <laughs> Scott, what do you think? I mean, seriously. Well, they sh said, Ju Julian Tinner said that um, it had to do with she could just give him a look and he would know what what number might be coming up or, you know, that there was like this telepathic way of them communicating that would help because <laughs> because when they integrated the casinos, yeah. the casinos stopped making the money the way they were when it was just male. Yes. Um, so I don't really buy the telepathic uh, reasoning. Mark, you got a theory? No, I just, uh, I, I... Oh, come on, Mark. You got a theory? I got a theory. Come on, I got a theory? Come on, man. The theory is... The theory is I lose every time I go to Vegas. Casinos are built for young, drunk, yes. single yes. men. Yes, <laughs> They didn't say if these women were the wives or some gal that they just met. Right. That's why they're lucky, because they want to get lucky. Come on. Yeah. But also, if they are the wives, I know when I was gambling with my wife, she was she would give me a look. That look was, you're not betting that much money. <laughs> or or she would literally she would take the chips. She would be like, Oh, that's house money. I'll take that. 
And so, you know, it's not the same as going with your buddies and being like, dude, you should double that bet. <laughs> and hey, the girl could have been there going, hey, come on, double that. And you'd be like, okay, yeah. that's how casinos are built. See, For but could sure. you say the study would mean that if a woman went to go gamble in Vegas and she brought a man along with her, she would be three times as lucky to... Uh, a chance to win? Shouldn't Don't it go you both bring ways? common sense yes, into this, Jesus, Mark? Mark, what God. are you doing? Get out of here. What guy's going to, or <laughs> what God, woman's buddy. doing that? You want to go to a, hey, yeah, hey, you want to go to the, what are you the doing dunes to, tonight? Yeah, what are you doing, Mary? I'm going to the sands by myself. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. So anyway, I think uh, that, that study is one that... Uh, is Scott and I understand it. Yes. Yeah. Mark, that, you're gonna you're gonna be our voice of reason forever. No, I'm not. <laughs> I, I mean, it's interesting because I don't think that study would fly today in 2024. Uh, well, first of all, there are no all male cas- no. casinos no. anywhere. Oh, let's cut off half of the <laughs> the population. Uh, How would they even stop? Do they, do they put guards out front and go? Oh, yeah, sorry, ma'am. You know, you know, come on. Yeah, yeah. All, the, all the casinos that I've been in. Married men are much less likely to spend as much because they're not drinking as much. That's right. They're, they're definitely just, they're, they have a, a security guard mm-hmm. with them, if mm-hmm. you will. A smarter person. A that knows much, much smarter, smarter person. More that says you reasonable. Yes. Um, you think you need another drink? Oh, shut up. <laughs> you know, I'm going to the ATM. No, you're not. No, you're going to hell. Get out of here. Um, I thought this one was really interesting. Do you guys see this about the uh, Loyola of Chicago? Played their game in alumni gymnasium, which seated 3,000 fans. Their coach saw Marshall's new building and sent a picture of it to his president saying, isn't money everything? And his president wrote back, Money is the root of all evil. <laughs> but but I thought, you know, we, we think of this as Loyola of Chicago. I mean, yeah. you know, Mark, maybe you know this. UCLA won their first national title in 1964. They won 10 of the last, 10 of the next 12 right. NCAA titles. In 1963, the year before that, Loyola of Chicago was the champion. I, I think they played Cincinnati, Oscar Robertson. They, I believe you're correct. I believe you're correct. And Jerry, was it Jerry? Lu- no, Jerry Lucas went to Ohio State. I'm trying to think of who went to Loyola of Chicago, but they had a they were a basketball powerhouse. But you know, at that same time, UCLA played their games in that old gym, the old gym. They didn't. Poly Pavilion had not been built yet. Right. So uh, back then, there were a lot of college teams that played their games smaller, in very smaller venues. And I remember yeah. even recently, like in the '80s, Cal used to play their basketball games in that gymnasium. And it was also used for volleyball and other sports. And you would look at the court, and you could hardly tell where the basketball court was because there'd be lines all over the place, like a volleyball line running through here and there. And it looked like a jigsaw puzzle. Right, right, like high school gyms were right. for a lot of that time. A lot of that time. Uh, Billy, you got something else from uh, the scorecard? Oh, just uh, let's let's move it along. I'll go to the the Dodger tickets. We all, right. I think, looked at that. Dodger tickets back in 74, 75 cents to $3.50 to go to a Dodger game. That is, and nowadays, I think I was saying this beforehand, that uh, tickets to a a nice seat to a Dodger game coming up, their second game of the season, I saw one for $11,000. Right. So it's a little Well, or I saw the cheapest one for opening day. Oh, what's that? The standing room only. Only, that's right. For $276. Yep, yep. But it's good. The good thing, the Walter Malio kept the price low because fans liked it that way. You don't have any owners, right? Doing that. Well, think of it. So this, these were the prices in '74, but they were they were the same in 1958. That's right. right. He did not raise the ticket prices for 16 years. Then he finally did. They added some dugout seats, and they went up to like five bucks a seat or something like that. But. Um, well, he said that it was attendance. If we're getting over two million at that time, that's now, right. Two that's million right. isn't that big, but back then it was really big. If we're getting two million people, that pays for itself, so we don't have to ri- raise the prices. But right. even but nowadays, right. even teams that do badly raise their prices. You know, even though the teams that don't do well every year, they raise their prices a little bit more. So just the thought that he did that, man, that's awesome. I, I like the Lakers went from two dollars in what nineteen sixty yeah. to four dollars. Yeah. <laughs> What can you get at a liquor game? Yep. Today and the cheapest for seat for the Rams was four bucks. <laughs> really? I mean, ju- yeah, wow. just just wow. 
Mark, you got another? I, I like the Hot Rod Huntley comment. So, you know, Hot Rod Huntley was a real character. He played for the Lakers. And then he was a Utah like jazz announcer for many, many years. Mm. Very colorful character. And he tells the story about playing with Elgin Baylor. And people don't realize what a, how great a player Elgin Baylor was, especially in his prime. And he talks about that they combined for 73 points in the game at Madison Square Garden. Mm. And then Hot Rod goes, of course, Elgin contributed 71 of those points <laughs> which reminds me of the uh, was that the Eddie Murphy line when he was doing trading places and he was working with Don Amici and uh, Ralph Bellamy and they were talking about oh I've done like 50 films oh I've done 75 films and then Eddie Murphy says well between the two of us now we've done you know plus two 127 yeah <laughs> That was the same thing that Wayne Gretzky and his brother Brent. Brent Gretzky played in the NHL, has like two goals, and said, me and my brother combined for like 900 something goals. goals. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Hank and Tommy yeah, Aaron. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great, great. Nice. Um, well, the cover story for this issue is um, called A Crafty Win for Muhammad, uh, written by a longtime Sports Illustrated reporter who covered uh, the sweet science in the golden age of boxing, actually the twenties is considered the golden mm -hmm. age of boxing, but for the heavyweight division, it, this was as good as it, as it got. Mark Cram senior, uh, covered that fight and his son will be joining us in just a, uh, in just a couple minutes. But by all accounts, um, this was not, these two guys, Ali and Frazier fought three times. And this was the, the, the least great of the three fights. Hmm. Um, is that is that the the consensus? That's the consensus. Think? But I watched that fight. I yeah. watched it a couple times when I was at home. Frazier was all over him. They weren't just sitting back and poking at each other. Muhammad Ali, you know, moved, gave him the side. But man, Joe Frazier, man, that guy just kept coming at him. I I mean, I don't know anything about officiating boxing, and I know Ali won that decision. But Unanimous. it seemed to me it Unanimous seemed to me decision. a draw. Really? I mean, Frazier was all over him. He was connecting the first four rounds, first few rounds went to Ali. And then Frazier just, just picked up the pace and that left hook he had was connecting a whole bunch of times. It was, a, it was actually a very entertaining fight to me. Well, the first fight got all the hype because that was the fight of the century. Yep. Mm -hmm. I remember I was in sixth grade and people that's all people could talk about was that fight. And for some reason I was rooting for Joe Frazier. I don't know why, but I was. And the probably third... because of the color of his gym shorts. Probably. Or yeah. Something very yes. it was random. Blue. Yes, random. Random. What he ate the yes. night before. Yes. Yeah, something random. <laughs> but the and the third fight, the the thrill in Manila obviously was just this unbelievable fight. So the second fight doesn't get all the publicity, but it was still a good fight. And the other thing about the second fight, the fight even was the most uh, uh, known thing about that. It was the fight before the fight right. that they had in that's the studio. Right. That's right. That, that studio was fight. was like, you know, when they're wrestling in the studio. Right. Yep. right. That's the most memorable thing from that fight. Did you listen to that? Not the second fight. See, the first I, fight I was. I mean, I mean, just, the, just that the, the thing with Cosell. Oh, in yeah, the studio. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They were just, Muhammad Ali was saying something to Joe Frazier. He goes, you just got to stop saying that. And and I don't think Ali thought he was serious. Joe Frazier was getting tired of being called names. Ignorant. He, he was ignorant, always yes, going after his, ignorant, uh, his intelligence. Ugly and ignorant. Yeah. And Joe hey. Frazier just, I mean, this they weren't fooling around. Even Howard Cosell was going, uh, uh we got a problem here. <laughs> it wasn't that normal type they do in fights right. nowadays where right. it's just a, it's all set up. No, it was... Right. um. The article. Go ahead. I'd be interested to hear from Mark about that because, yeah, um, you know, Ali. I don't think he had any ill will towards Joe. It was just a way of marketing the fight. He That's, was a mark. He wanted to put and, asses in and, seats. And I think Joe maybe took it more seriously mm -hmm. the fight or whatever. Yeah. So it'll that, be interesting to see what that Mark has Muhammad to say about that. was the the first guy to kind of do that stuff. You know, he was a carnival barker and he was trying to drum up publicity and he was fine to be the bad mm -hmm. guy. But I don't think uh, you know. I don't. I think we can, we'll ask Mark about this. I don't think Frazier ever took it. He never took it that way. Right. He took it personal. He took oh, it to heart. Yeah. Almost like a, when they ever would mention Ali's name, he would just get really angry, almost like a PTSD. You mentioned someone's name and he just was, I don't want to see him. I can't get that guy out of here. There was no friendliness. The article almost reads like an obituary, just in terms of both guys are, and, and, and this is familiar, are past their prime right yeah um right sounds familiar but it, it 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 these guys still had some some at least ali really did some good years ahead of them 
Um, Frazier never really recovered from this fight. From the time of Ali's fight after that, Frazier went six and four. Right. That was, and, and was, you can even say that the the last fight against Jumbo Cummings, he lost that fight. And they gave it to Frazier. He would have gone five and five. He was six and four. So this fight, I think those fights took everything out of him. Yeah. What's uh, Frazier is that though Frazier was thirty and Ali was thirty two yeah. for this fight. So Ali was actually the older fighter. Yeah, and they did say that Ali basically won the first four mm-hmm. rounds, mm-hmm. and that. Mm-hmm dictated the fight that that Frazier had to at that point yeah, really right. be the aggressor you know that was Ali's style right um you know the rope of dope yep, and yep. he made the other guy work a lot harder and and you know he was great at av- avoiding being hit he hard. clenched at the perfect times yeah he knew exactly when to clench and also Frazier was a type of fighter that didn't get off to good starts he came in sort of slow, and he led with his head, so he was going to get hits. He was going to get punched, but he just, you know, I mean, every time Frazier would get in close, Ali just knew how to put his arms on him and shut it down. As I uh, as I mentioned earlier, Mark Cram Sr. was a legendary writer for Sports Illustrated, covering all three Ali-Frazier fights. Later wrote the book Ghosts of Manila, which is, uh, by all accounts, a must read for boxing fans. Um, he passed away back in uh, 2002, I believe I wrote down. But um, his son, Mark Cram Jr., who, from what I have read, is technically not a junior, but still took after his pop. Um, <laughs> journalist and writer who covers boxing, the author of four books, including Smoke and Joe, The Life of Joe Frazier, published by Harper Collins. Welcome to Past Our Prime, Mark. Very good. Nice to be with you. Perfect, perfect. Let's get right to this fight because these fights are kind of the perfect reason we are doing this podcast. This time in uh, in boxing was just sensational, and much of that was because the heavyweight division was just stacked. I mean, fifty years later. I can say to anyone my age, a little younger or older, these names, Frazier, Ali, Foreman, Norton, Lyle, uh, Jerry Quarry, and they just light up. What kind of impact did they have on you as a kid? Well, it was an exciting time, and uh, uh, that's for sure. Dad, uh, uh beginning in about 1965 or so, uh, uh, inherited the boxing beat at Sports Illustrated. So he covered the elimination tournament um, that uh, was put together to try to choose a champion for uh, Ali's vacant title. So he covered all those fights. Uh, So, you know, we were kind of a boxing household that way. I remember as a kid, I used to uh, sit and watch Wide World of Sports and and try to pick him out in the crowd at ringside. You know, it was kind of uh, kind of he always had seemed to have a pretty good seat that way. Um, uh, you know, I, I was more of a baseball fan as a child. Uh, uh, I saw the young fellow with the Oriole hat. That was my team, the Orioles. Um, I grew up in Baltimore and, um, you know. It was a uh, uh, good time to be an Orioles fan. Yeah, right. And it was really an exciting time uh, to follow boxing. Uh, I don't think you'll ever see anything like it ever again. You know, it's um, uh, any of those fighters that you mentioned and and even the next tier down could have been champions today. You know, I've heard them talk about uh, Mike Tyson ad nauseum. And, uh, you know, Tyson would have been hard pressed to really be in the top 10. Uh, I mean, in the in the top five of the top 10 uh, back then, in my opinion, uh, those guys were uh, were really skilled. And uh, and it was a whole different atmosphere around boxing. You know, uh, you'd have a fight and then you'd have the press come into town and they would uh, set up camp at the various hotels. And they they write stories two or three a day sometimes, you know, building up the fight, you know, and uh, there was a real atmosphere around it. There was the fighters were accessible. Uh, there was none of this uh, these press agents really running interference. The press agents back then really tried to facilitate 
access to the fighters. And, uh, uh, and that was true of all athletes, actually, back then. Uh, it's a whole different atmosphere now. I was really happy to come along when I did because it really, it will never be like that again. The first fight they had, the fight of the century gets all the pub. And then, of course, the thrill in Manila. This fight, Super Fight 2, doesn't right. have the same pub the other two fights got. But do you consider... Well, it wasn't as good a fight. <laughs> it wasn't as good a fight. It's sort of the redhead, redheaded stepchild of those fights. Uh, it was a 12-round fight to begin with. It wasn't 15. Uh, and it was a... Uh, uh, I describe it in my book as... You know, neither neither the fighters were champions at the time. Um, Joe had lost his title to George uh, George Foreman, and Ali had not yet won it back. Uh, so, it was a non-title fight uh, uh, in uh, late January, I think it was in in New York. And you know, it was one of those New York moments, like you know, if Frank Sinatra had come through town and had a date at the Garden. I mean, everybody showed up in their fine clothes and their, you know, they had dinner plans and reservations built around it. And it was a big kind of New York moment, but it wasn't a moment for the ages, the way the first and third fight were, if you follow what I'm saying. Yes. Was the best part the yeah. fight before the fight, the one the week, the when they had the interview and all of a sudden. Oh, they- yeah. Yeah. That was a that was an interesting. Uh, I mean, a lot of people at the time thought it was kind of staged. Um, and, you know, given Ali's uh, proclivities, you just don't know what's staged and what isn't. But uh, it's clear that Joe was extremely angry. Just to back up, he had been invited uh, to appear on Wide World of Sports with Howard Cassell. Uh, I guess it was about five days before the for the fight and uh, to sort of review the film of the first fight with Ali. Initially, Eddie, F- Eddie Futch, uh, uh, who was uh, uh, by then uh, uh, Frazier's manager, uh, he, de- he declined the offer. He felt like it was, a, it was too risky that Ali was going to start, uh, uh, start up with Frazier and you know, pulling his various antics and, and what have you. And he just thought it wasn't going to be uh, work to Joe's advantage. So, uh, but Cosell persisted and he guaranteed Futch that everything was going to be all, all right. In fact, he would even sit between the two fighters with Ali on one side and, uh, and Frazier on the other. Finally, uh, Futch uh, uh, went against his better judgment and, and, and agreed to the interview. Well, no sooner that he got to the studio that uh, there were three chairs on the stage and Cosell was on the end and Ali and Frazier were seated next to each other. Well, Futch, of course, brought this up and he said, uh, you know, what's going on here, Howard? You told me. uh," And Howard waved him off and said, it's going to be fine, Eddie. Don't worry. It's going to be fine. I'll keep control of it. Well, of course, uh, it went out of control rather uh, over the period of... uh, uh, about an hour or so, and, you know, they were watching the fight and, you know, Ali started on uh, Joe almost immediately and words were exchanged and one thing led to another. And uh, finally, uh, uh, Ali called uh, Joe ignorant one time too many. And Joe got in, uh, you know, stood up and, uh, and, and the two actually rumbled. They, they grabbed each other. They rolled on the floor bodies were all over the place arms were arms and legs were all over the place they had fallen they had rolled off the stage onto the cement floor of the studio and and uh, joe had a hold of ali's leg and bobby goodman who uh, the late bobby goodman who was handling the press screamed out to joe you know don't uh, <laughs> you're twisting his legs you'll, you'll you'll bust his ankle there won't be a fight finally they uh they uh, they broke it up and um uh, Joe huffed and, uh, you know, stormed off the stage out of the building. Ali uh, asked somebody for his comb and he just combed his hair kind of nonchalantly, as he always did. And uh, Futch said uh, to, uh, to Scosell, he said, you are an unprincipled man. Mm. Wow. 
and uh, and but the story really doesn't end there because the feeling is the this the general feeling is that Joe sort of left his all that aggression that you need to build up to carry it into a fight. Joe had left it in a television studio. It was almost like uh, you're so you're so uh, you're tightened up like a ball and finally you let it explode into a wall, your fist into a wall. But then, you know, you just can't recapture the same intensity. And so what happened was that um, uh, Joe just did not have the fine edge that that he um, that he might have had had they not uh, had this scuffle. How much I just from reading your book. It seemed like Ali was in the process when he would say that to, to Joe Frazier, that he was trying to get tickets sold or asses and seats, as he said. How? Oh, sure. How was Frazier? It seemed like there was just so much animosity and so much anger. How was his feeling toward Muhammad Ali through his career against him and watching him? Well, you know, it, it waxed and waned. You know, I always felt that Joe, it was a fundamentally... Uh, big-hearted fellow. Uh, he really was. He um, he had a sense of fighters outside of the ring that they sort of belonged to the same fraternity, the same sort of brotherhood. And he could never quite figure out or understand why Ali uh, uh, was so, uh, uh, what's the word, you know, combative with his opponents outside the ring, that they, why he didn't you know, why they didn't leave it for, you know, what was going on between the ropes and just outside of the ring, they could all be friends. And um, so Joe was, uh, he was never quite sure. He was close to Ali, but in the way that business partners and business associates or rivals rather sometimes are, you know, the idea that we have a, we have a commonality here. We can, uh, Ali said, Back in the late 60s, when he was exiled from the ring, he said that um, um, he said that I look at Joe Frazier and I see $10 million. Well, in 1967 or whenever it was, he wasn't far off, actually. <laughs> I mean, uh, when they did sign for the first fight, they got record numbers, 2.5 million guaranteed apiece. So for those times, I mean, Ali was right in that prognostication. But Ali or Joe was willing to go along with that. He could see his the advantage. Uh, there was an advantage to uh, throwing in with Ali that way. And uh, but Ali uh, soon learned over a period of years that the American public uh, seems to delight in another person's humiliation. And Ali understood if if there was a way that he could sort of get. Uh, people, uh, uh, you know, jacked up for the fight, you know, uh, he, he just sort of pushed the button a little harder each time he went at Joe. And uh, and before the Manila fight, it, it really got ugly uh, to the point that New York Magazine ran an article about Ali called Ali Racist uh, because he was calling him a gorilla and... Uh, uh, you know, ignorant and a freak and uh, uh, all sorts of things that it was just uh, utterances that were just wild. But I guess to answer your question, um, Joe had his limit, you know, particularly when his, uh, his children would come home from school and talk about how they were ridiculed in school by their schoolmates that your daddy is an ape, your daddy is uh, ignorant, you know, that sort of thing. And they would get in fights and what have you. That was, that was, uh, that really burned Joe up, you know, as it would any father, I would, su I would suppose, you know. Sure. I just, I, I, looking back and, and seeing that when, when he came in, when Frazier came into his fight with Ali, he was 26 and 0. After that, the rest of his career, he was six and four. How much did those fights take out of Frazier for the rest of his career? Well, you know, uh, Yank Durham, his manager from who was his manager from the beginning, who later passed away, and Eddie Futch were uh, extremely careful in how they uh, managed Joe. Uh, if you look at Atley's record and Joe's record side by side during those years, 
Ali was in action almost every other month, it seemed like. Joe had two fights a year at Tops and not against the best competition you could find. They were kind of trying to squeeze the, the, the toothpaste out of the tube very carefully and gingerly. Uh, with a fighter like Joe, who was small, who absorbed a lot of punishment, who was a, um, um, you know, the feeling was that a fighter like that, you have to keep a close eye on, on him because he could go at any time. And, you know, uh, the, the smart money seemed to indicate that there'd be an Ali Frazier rematch, you know, within a year of the, net, of the first fight, but they couldn't come together on terms. Uh, Joe did not want to give away the lion's share of the purse to Ali. He felt he was champion and he should get the lion's share. And uh, the, not understanding that Ali was the great gate attraction, that there was no getting around who was selling the tickets. It was Ali. Um, so he went on to fight Foreman, which was against the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the wisdom of his manager, Yank Durham. Yank didn't want him to fight for him. Joe wanted to fight for him, Foreman. And, um, he got his clock cleaned. Uh, you know, in fact, uh, it was that night that the, that the phrase down goes Frazier was born, you know, uh, uh, with uh, Howard Cosell. We're talking with Mark Graham, Jr., author of Smoking Joe, The Life of Joe Frazier. Mark, can you tell me what was Joe like? Not not Smoking Joe, but just Joe. Well, he was a he was a good guy uh, in Philadelphia. Um he understood what it was to be a champion in a city. Um, you know, he made the rounds. Um, he uh, shook hands. He signed autographs. He kissed babies. Um, and if you needed to see him, if you had a, if you had a son who wasn't doing his schoolwork and you wanted to get him a good tongue lashing from Joe, all you had to do was walk up Broad Street, knock on the door, and he was there. And uh, he'd put your son in a headlock and he'd say, now you go to school, you know, of course, playfully. Right. But the point was that uh, although in the early years, Joe had a kind of a, a, a bit of a tense relationship with Philadelphia, in part because of his relationship with the mayor, Frank Rizzo. In later years, he was um, he was. Uh, a really uh, warm guy uh, uh, in town. Uh, the people really here loved him. In fact, he would he used to carry uh, a, a roll of bills in his in his sock. He called it the love. And if he would come across someone that uh, needed a hand or needed some money or was in a tight spot, you know, he said, "You look like you could use some love." And he would take out a roll and peel off a hundred or a couple hundreds. Um, you know, which might have accounted for the fact that he ended up broke. But in any case, he was big hearted that way. Um, you know, if he saw a, a motorist stranded on the side of the road, uh, he would tell who was ever driving to pull over and he would get out and and change the change the flat. <laughs> I mean, he did that not once, but countless times. Um, so, you know, it's it's funny. That's kind of the untold story of 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 Frazier, but Ali was the same way. Both of those men did a lot of things behind the scenes that the public never really saw. They were tremendously generous people. Um, and uh, in that respect, uh, you know, um, uh, I don't think that story has been fully told about how how kind they were really, um, you know. But with Joe, you know, his animosity with Ali, as I say, waxed and waned. And finally, uh, uh, what happened was, um, you know, Ali would send back messages through through Joe's son Marvis or some other intermediary that he was sorry for all the all the nastiness that he uh, rained down on on Joe, and uh, but Joe wouldn't have it. He said, he, you know, he he apologized to you. He didn't apologize to me. Uh, you know, so finally, it took Ali coming to Philadelphia for the NBA All-Star game. 
to uh, Ali invited Joe and Marvis up to uh, his hotel suite and they had dinner and they in 2002 and they hugged it out. And it, it constitutes the end of my book. I don't want to spoil it for anyone who's who does read the book, because I think the ending is really, uh, really quite a quite moving, you know, tear jerking. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. Is there, you know, for young people today, they just don't understand what it was like back then. Is there an athlete, and it doesn't even have to be a boxer or anyone that comes close to what Ali and Frazier had, you know, the qualities they had as athletes and warriors? No, no, I don't think so. People say that every generation has its, has its, uh, has its uh, stars and its, and it's gallant men, so to speak. Um, but, and I think that's true, generally speaking. However, they wouldn't be like them. Uh, and the circumstances that created those two would never exist again. So there couldn't be another Ali and Frazier. Uh, uh, and there couldn't be three events like those again. Um, because today... It would have the heavy hand of marketing behind it. Uh, it would have the heavy hand of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, just massive, massive money. And it's my belief that the that if you want to guarantee that you don't, and this is most case, in some, in my view, most cases, not all cases, but if you want to guarantee that you're not going to get the player you had last year. Pay him a lot of money for this year. Give him his dream contract. You know, I think money has taken the, really the luster off of what we once do uh, in sports, although they made a lot of money. But uh, it was a different time. It was a tougher time. Uh, these guys were under scrutiny with from some really sharp writers, a, a press corps that was really sharp and seasoned. And cover them for, uh, you know, from the beginning of their careers to the very end. I mean, really terrific, talented writers. You don't see that today. Everything's sort of shortened down to, you know, TikTok and, uh, and, uh, and Twitter and uh, the various social media forums, which can't duplicate just the romance, the romance of, of those days, you know, um, I'll give you an example. My father, when he covered when he covered this fight, he uh, it was on a Monday night, and the uh, Sports Illustrated was keeping its publishing operation open at a cost of a thousand dollars a minute. Now, so basically, he had to come back. Uh, after the fight, take the subway back to the Time Life building uh, uh, in Rockefeller Center uh, and go up to his office on the 24th floor, I think it was. And he had an hour to write the article, one hour, with editors pacing outside of his door of his office. And, um, you know, that's intense pressure. But that's there was a romance to that kind of uh thing you know and and that's what we've lost is that sort of uh the the romance of big magazines and big city dailies and columnists and uh and uh the bars that they would go to and hang out and you know it's just the the whole world is now it's a vanished world you know and uh I could only glimpse it as a yeah, I could only glimpse it as a as a as a boy. I was a teenage boy, but uh I got to experience it somewhat in my own career in the 80s and 90s. But you know, anyway. No, I was gonna say when I was growing up, the heavyweight a heavyweight championship fight, it was an event. It was a big it deal. It was an event. Nowadays you know, I think I think Jake Paul is the one guy we all know, and he's a YouTube guy for the heavyweight division. So, yeah, this point in time, Frazier and Ali, if they were fighting nowadays, they would just be one and two. Do you have any respect now for the heavyweight division? No, not really. None. 
I mean, I don't follow it that closely. Nobody, but does. it's a, no. the, but the just like newspapers, you know, the newspaper business, yeah. boxing and the heavyweight division is is a memory. Yeah, I don't know how we got here this quickly, but yeah. we sure are there, and uh, it's it's uh, it's all now in the musty uh, the musty uh, record books and memoirs, really, at this point. You know, going back from that, I remember just when we said about an event, I remember it, it was a simple, it was, it was the Rocky movie. And I, did I read it in your book or was it somewhere else that Frazier actually sparred with Sylvester Stallone and Sylvester Stallone? Said, right. Was in the tell movie, me right? that story. He was in the movie. But, the that, rain, yeah. but tell me, tell me that if you can tell the story. Well, he was, he was, he was trying out, for, I think, for the part that uh, Mr. T got, if I'm not mistaken, I'd have to check the text. That is. But I think that's what it was. And he was auditioning. But when Joe got into the ring, uh, he became an animal. <laughs> <clears throat> there were no half measures. And I think Stallone has, has said that he that uh, that Joe cracked his ribs. Uh, but that's not surprising because when Joe used to get in the ring with his son, Marvis, he used to beat the crap out of him. I mean, Joe thought if you were going to get in the ring, you know, there were, there, as I say, no half measures. He was not, he was not there to play around. Yeah. And I think that was, didn't they, then they made the Frazier was in one of the Rocky movies. The first one. I it think, was the first one. He comes out and they go, Oh, Joe Frazier. And, and Apollo goes, I'm coming for you. And that was still in that movie. That was such a key part. Cause Joe Frazier was just, he's Joe Frazier. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. So important, just the small parts when he would do things. It, it was, that's awesome. It was such a little known movie at the time yes. it was being made. So having Joe in the movie was almost like he was a big star in, in that brief cameo he had for that time. Well, Joe was always uh uh he sort of got his nose out of joint. Uh the Rocky uh had stolen his story, basically, his quote unquote story. Because Joe had uh when he first got to Philly uh he had a job in a slaughterhouse doing the very things that that rocky does in the uh in the um in the film you know banging on pieces of you know uh meat hanging from the ceiling but he was also you know he was chopping the heads off a steer and that sort of thing and uh uh running the uh art museum steps joe used to do that too so joe uh uh Jim, Frazier always thought of himself as the real Rocky. Well, the real Rocky might well have been uh Chuck Wepner, right. uh, who uh, you know, took Ali uh 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 you know uh I think the distance in uh, Cleveland in a fight was all bloodied up and what have you, and it was sort of like a rocky, a rocky moment. Um so I, Rocky was a, an amalgam of uh, all sorts of different fight lore, like uh, almost the way the natural was an amalgam of all the, the different uh, stories uh, about Babe Ruth and all sorts of other kind of uh, fantasy things about baseball. But so in so any case, uh, yeah. So since we're talking about like sports movies or boxing movies, we do a little segment here called 50-50. I'm going to give you it's a 50-50 chance. To answer a trivia question from 50 years ago, basically. And there's a <laughs> okay. movie theme to it, okay? So a few months before the Super Fight 2, a little-known movie came out. It didn't do much. Uh, probably, I don't know if you've even heard of it. It was called The All-American Boy, and it starred John Voight. And your trivia question is true or false. Muhammad Ali made an appearance in that film. No. You are correct, but a future heavyweight champ did make an appearance in that film. Any idea who that future heavyweight champ was? George Foreman. Good guess, but no, it was Ken Norton. And oh, Ken, of course, how could I forget it? He was Mandingo. But what, <laughs> but what was even more remarkable? He wasn't the only Ken Norton in the film. His son Ken Norton Jr. apparently was on his shoulder during a scene where he walks into a boxing gym. Interesting. So you had both. Ah. But anyway, that's the trivia question for the day. Nice. Also, also, uh, also trained by Eddie Futch. 
Right. See, Joe and uh, Ken Norton. Joe and Ken Norton never fought. That's right. You know, and Butch had the. He unlocked the key to beating Ali. You know, he unlocked it with Joe, and he unlocked it with Ken Norton. You know, who who, who broke Ali's jaw. So uh, so Joe never fought Norton, but they did spar together, and uh, before the Foreman fight in um, Jamaica. Uh, Joe was so ragged and off his form that Eddie Futch had to lay, uh, lay Norton off because Norton was making him look so bad in the, in the, in sparring. So there was indicators that Joe just didn't have his head in that fight, but, and anyway, Ken Norton. Yes. Yeah. What an era it was, right? All those fighters, uh, Ernie Shavers and. Can I just ask one person? Yeah. You talked about Mike Tyson when we first started. Uh, Tyson obviously fought Marvis Frazier. How did right. he handle watching his son take a beating, so to speak? Well, I'm sure it was uncomfortable for him. Uh, it was an awful, it was an awful mess. Um, you know, uh, when. Um, when Marvis fought Larry Holmes, um, you know, he, uh, Holmes knocked him out with something like 15 or 16 straight left hands. And, uh, uh, but he, he kept his, he kept his hand open. It was more or less slapping at him. But with Tyson, Tyson had, you know, he had, uh, he had murder in his eyes and he really did a, did a job on uh on marvis and you know uh joe comforted him at the end you know as a father would but joe was his manager and he should have never had marvis in the ring with with tyson at that time in his career but he was looking at it from a financial point of view and there was a lot of money thrown by the networks um at Marvis to get the name, Frazier name, uh, on television against Tyson, they were going to pay for it. And if they were going to pay for it, Joe was going to take it. And the truth of the matter, if there's a culprit in making that match, it's the television uh, network that, uh, that really ought to be taken to the woodshed for that fight. Mark, you know, these guys were mythical. Yes. Uh, men back in the days foreman and ali they just really were and and it's thanks to guys like your father and you that brought them to life to a generation of of people like us i can't thank you enough for joining us today it's been a lot of fun talking about um two of the all-time not just greats but people who really just am were emblematic of that time of that sport. So thank you for coming on and we wish you well. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Bye-bye. Take good care. You too. You too. too. That was uh, Mark Cram Jr. Author of smoke and Joe, the life of Joe Frazier. um, And wrote, three other books mm-hmm. he mentioned briefly the natural mm-hmm. and i don't know if you guys saw this oh that's right but he wrote a a, a book called eddie and the gun girl oh. which is the true story of the shooting of philadelphia phillies all-star first baseman eddie wykus by female admirer ruth steinhagen he T- that book was later fictionalized and turned into a book and then adapted into a screenplay right and turned into the natural starring Robert Redford. Redford. So uh, I thought that, close. you know, just, I mean, so, so go in and check out markcramjr.com. Um, this book is, is, is well is, worth a read. It is yeah. fantastic. Oh my golly. It um, is. It takes you not just Frazier in the ring. It takes you, it shows what kind of man he was, that he wasn't just a guy that got out there and hit what he said about the good things he did for people. Yeah. He just walk around and give hundred, love, hundreds of dollars to people. Yeah. That was, yeah that that's was, exactly Mark. Yeah. Exactly. Giving out the love. How yeah. awesome is and that? That was a story I did not know. And that's a fantastic story. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, you just, you just don't realize that, that we 
looked at these guys as just supermen and they were true people and yeah. true good people. Yeah. And you, and back then the only way to get to know them writers. Yeah. Really yeah. was. Yeah, and I mean, nowadays, nowadays it's TikTok. You know, now yeah. it's now they're everywhere. And now what, what Isn't that funny they're everywhere and yet we couldn't name any of them. No. Yeah, there you go. But I'm saying that's what I'm saying. If you look at the heavyweight fighters right now, only one I ever hear about is Jake Paul. Because he's the one that anytime there's a fight, yeah, Tyson Fury, Tyson Fury. It's not, it's not boxing. It's no, MMA. exactly. MMA is basically yeah. the new boxing. I, 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 you can clip this. Can I tell one story? Yeah. Uh, back in when Tyson Holyfield had their first fight, the they sent deer. me. They sent me, and I was doing the the shots with Jim there, Jim Hill. And for whatever reason, after the fight ended. Glenn Shimon and I ended up, I said, well, let's just go through this door. We ended up outside the door where Tyson walked right out right next to me. His face was completely purple and there's all the television cables. So we walk over there and here comes Holyfield walking right toward me, right toward me. I mean, two feet from me. And I tripped over one of the cables. Holyfield reaches out and grabs my shirt and goes, you take it easy there, young fella. <laughs> and I walk by. That was right after the fight. I mean, wow. I, and it was just Tyson's face was bloated and purple, and they rushed him out to a limo. And Holyfield looked like he had, you know, gone to the did, library. Did he? Uh, did you bite him in the ear? No, I, I no, I wanted to. But actually, the biting in the ear was the next. Yeah, fight. It was, it was the yeah, it was second. But the yeah. first fight, which was I remember, because Bill was, God, I was at work at CBS. Yeah. and Bill was watching the fight. Yeah, I could not get the fight in. And uh, all of a sudden, Bill says, oh, my God, Tyson just bit his ear. I go, ha, 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 really funny, Bill. Right. He says, no, seriously, he yep. bit his ear. Oh, wait, he did it again. I'm like, what the? Man. Yeah. I just love well, boxing. I, I hate it where it great. went. I it hate where it's really, going. Um, it, it will never be the same. No, and he was in the era with his father. They got to see all of these guys. Just to think to see Ali, Frazier, and all the foreman, yeah. all in there when they're young and in their prime. Just amazing. Moving on to the next um, story here was um, on the Past Our Prime podcast. The Pistons, Billy, um, had not been very good for a long time, but uh, behind Dave Bing and yep. Bob Lanier started to turn things around. Um, Dave Bing, one of the best players in the NBA back at the time. Yep. Bob Lanier was uh, criticized for being overweight and yep. never in shape. Yep. And finally he became really, um, dedicated. Yep. He was the all-star MVP that mm -hmm. game that year, averaging 24 points and 14 rebounds. So a couple of blasts from the past who were starting to, uh, get things done in, in Motown. Did you read the little bit about Dave Bing? Dave Bing as a child stuck a nail through his left pupil and then he, in 71, his retina was torn in his right eye. So he played one more game. He scored some points. And then he had to have his retina sewed back in. Mm. Dave Bing, come on. And nowadays, if there's a hangnail, the guys are out. Dave Bing was just, yeah. I mean. Well, we, he always had issues with yes. his eyes. Yes, he did. That, 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 yes, that he would did. explain why. Yes. But he said that um, he had depth perception mm -hmm. issues and, and his had no peripheral vision, basically. And he said, the only way I can tell who's on my team from the under end of the floor is by the color of the uniforms. Yeah. Otherwise, everyone looks like a hazy blob, <laughs> which is basically him calling me out, yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> so. But that's in the NBA, man. That's one thing if you're out on the playground, you're playing against the greatest players in the world. Yeah. And he was able to have an amazing career with obviously you said depth perception and vision vision problems. Yeah. But I mean, uh, you know, taking a nail in the eye though has a probably occasionally can, can derail someone's career. You know, the rest <laughs> of the, uh, of I was going to say Dave Bing, you know, was my favorite player. The first NBA player I ever followed that I was a fan of. That was like my guy. guy. Right. And unfortunately the Pistons weren't very good back then, which is too bad because I love Dave Bing. Yeah. Yeah. The rest of the issue goes, you know, they talk a little bit about team tennis, which was um, trying to take hold, but but never really did. And then they, um, I thought this was interesting. They did a, a, re, a retake of the UCLA losing mm -hmm. to Notre Dame. They did like a diary, but UCLA had already 
beaten them in the rematch. So it kind of lost their luster, but it just goes to show you that nowadays that, that diary leading up to the first game, we'd have that the day of the first game. This was like two weeks yeah, later. Right. And so, you know, I'm sure they enjoyed it back then, but it did lose a little bit of it because UCLA had already beaten them um, in the in the rematch. Yeah, by 19. So, you know, I mean, UCLA takes care of takes care of Notre Dame and um, you guys have anything else to add about that? Yeah, the one thing that stuck out to me because when I think of John Wooden, I think it's just the gentlemanly coach, great guy, you're yeah, always helping. Digger Phelps actually told his players to avoid the UCLA bench because Wooden would hassle them. That's the last thing I think Wooden would do. Imagining him talking trash, I just—I right? can't right. see that. But that, yeah. that would be do funny. an extra chore today. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think that was one of his specialties, you know. Um, trash talking wooden—that's that's what he was known for. Yes. Um, you know, we mentioned this in previous episodes, but I think it is fair to say that 50 years ago, Sports Illustrated loved track and field yes yes i mean they just loved it um so there is a feature on a retired navy commander named bud deacon who at the time was 62 years old was setting all sorts of records um i think mark's 62 no i'm 64 oh yeah and and i want to say something there's a picture of him and he's jumping over the hurdle yeah and he's so he's two years younger than me and jumping over the hurdle just looking at that picture I've got a strain in my groin already. Well, as as Mark was telling us prior, Mark has a hard time just walking. <laughs> That's true. Because I, he, uh, Mark, he took I a tripped, spill. I tripped and fell and, the other and day. And to Mark's right. credit, most people would be like, yeah, there was a dog and a <laughs> leash. Or, no, he just had trouble putting the right foot in front of the left foot. Well, was Isn't it there the, a song with that? Put yeah. one foot in front, in front of the I think it was the, the left foot in front of the right ah, foot. Okay. And that was it. Didn't and, someone uh, stop and try to take you to the hospital? No, someone stopped by and said, you're okay, because I landed right on the asphalt on my right hand side and so I you're no bud deacon i said nope nope i'm okay i'll make it um sorry well, uh, unlike mark this guy was actually a a true uh yeah. athlete he was uh he finished tied for third in the olympic trials in 1932 for the pole vault but uh he was bumped by another stanford guy they would only take so many people in 1936 he finished fourth but they changed the rules that only the top three would go. So he missed out then. In 1940, he did qualify for the Olympics, but the games were canceled because of World War II. So he had to wait like 30 years later. He never got to go to the Olympics. Um, but once he started becoming into his 60s, he was just setting records left and right um, within, in, you know, the, the 440, the 880, the, the, the mile, the two mile. Um, he also yeah, threw the javelin. Yeah. And played volleyball. And you know, he did it all. Yeah. He got enshrined actually into the USA Track and Field Masters Hall of Fame in 2001. So. Yeah. I mean, he was a legit yeah. stud who had to wait until he was in his 60s to get his the, his his due. I couldn't find an article on him. I was wondering if at 112 he might be still. I know. Uh, yeah. I tried. He, I, I he saw had him at the track the other day. <laughs> on the way in, we yeah. saw him at the track. Yeah, he lapped me. just a skeleton Um, but he made it now from track and field we go to three straight articles of just i mean i i don't know what sports illustrated was doing back then i didn't you know i mean this is where me as a five six year old was like all right i'm done and bye (laughs) right yeah um they did something on the america's cup yeah i mean for like i can remember one summer Maybe eight, early '80s was it with Dennis Connor? Was that his yes. name? Connor. But wasn't this right. one they talked about? Was Ted Turner was yeah the, Ted Turner Ted in the, the '70s. He was the 70s, a Red yes. Robin. That was the article on Ted right. Turner. That's right. the only in thing the I remember 70s, about Ted that. Ted Turner won the America's yeah. Cup. Yeah, right. Deal. And in the '80s, I actually covered the America's Cup down in San Diego with Connors. Right? Isn't yeah. that crazy? Yeah. I mean, I it, was, that. it was. It was. I think it had a lot to do with that was the beginning stages of ESPN. So yeah. ESPN yeah. had it on a lot. A lot. I don't even know if they still do it. I mean, they probably do, but I mean, it gets even less attention than than boxing, which is saying something. Um, From there, they um, they went to to bridge. (laughs) A bridge bridge. too far, right? I'm sure I stole Uh, Mark's line there. Um, I mean, 
Bridge is not a sport. Poker's not even a sport. I don't know why they're they're talking bridge and then slingshots. They had an article on slingshots. So yeah, I saw that lady. You know, yeah, we're yeah, gonna was, we're not gonna. Yeah. You know, this is the kind of stuff ESPN showed when they were first starting. Uh, now they're worth $25 billion, ESPN. So on maybe the, they made the right choice in not doing slingshots. But this is about bridges. The only thing I read, it said, if the East refuses to win, declare cl- cashes the club ace, roughs the club and dummy, and takes a winning spade finesse. I, no, I, don't, I don't know what's harder. What does that mean? Is, is, <laughs> Spud's a dummy? What, what is, yeah. Well, that's obvious. Yeah, I'm an idiot. I lost. <laughs> what is harder to understand, bridge or cricket? I'm trying to... And my daughter's really into cricket now. She wants to learn really? all the rules about cricket. Ah. So does so, my daughter. No really? way. Yeah, Callie <laughs> wants to play cricket in the backyard. She's five. Dad, let play cricket again. I said, I don't know how to play cricket. She goes, just get a stick and hit the ball. And then, okay. <laughs> huh. Uh, I don't know. Seems like we could learn bridge. I mean... Yeah, old right. old women. Well, that's yeah. but it was like canasta. I don't know what canasta is. So I'm, that's that would be. Right. You know, I'm, uh, I'm good with you know go fish. I'm good yeah. with crazy eights. Cra- uh, Uno, Uno. Uno. Got that war. Yeah, war you can play yeah, with yourself. Can, no, I'm good. War. I don't think you need to be playing with yourself though. Let's <laughs> keep it clean, okay? Hey, um, <laughs> keep it clean. <laughs> I there were a couple of ads that I really liked the in the magazine. They had the one Bob Hope was uh, modeling like that's, the the, the uh, golf attire and shirts and stuff like that. You know. Which uh, and for anyone who doesn't know Bob Hope, who's too young to know Bob Hope, <laughs> wow. he was a, uh, a a entertainer, actor. Uh, he would travel on these USA shows. Uh, He's for one the, that the military. went with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. stuff like that. Uh, um, so, okay. And he had a golf tournament named after him, the Bob Hope Dish Classic. I mean, you weren't you weren't an All American until right. Bob Hope exactly told and you exactly that's right. He did the college football show. That's right. Right. But, but the other ad I found interesting, there was an ad for Datsun. And for those of you who don't know who Datsun is, that was the car, D-A-T-S-U-N. Now, yes. Datsun is now known as Nissan. Ah. And it was always Nissan. They just called the car Datsun. And finally, they said, you know what? That's stupid. Let's just call our cars Nissan as well, too. So yeah. when you drive a Nissan, remember, one time it was a Datsun. Well, that's when my, every, when my mom wanted me to get a car, all she ever said was, you need to get a Datsun B210. That's when I get my butt kicked if I drive to school and that. It was always the Datsun B210. Nice. Well, maybe she wanted you to get your butt She kicked. obviously did. <laughs> they finally, they ended uh, with another story that I tried to get through, but I would rather have my eyelids picked. It was called Footfalls in a Blue Ridge Winter by Ann Dillard. She won a Pulitzer Prize for a series of essays called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek that blended science, philosophy, humanism, and other thoughts on life. What it was doing in Sports Illustrated, I have absolutely no idea. This is why Glad you, you read wrote. things about Glad bridge and it. slingshots. Is, yeah. is bird watching a sport? I guess you could say it'd be the you know there's stuff that involved in nature, observing nature. Is that a sport? Is that a pastime? Is that what is it? It's not a sport. Mm-hmm. No, oh. I, I I don't know what it is. I guess we, well, it's people get mad slingshots. I guess you have to be competing, right? Are you competing with another bird watcher? Right. I guess I don't know. Anything else, guys? The the people again? section I got to bring up. All right, if you go, ahead. go ahead. So there's an article or a, a blurb about Jim Weatherly, and Jim Weatherly was the backup quarterback on the 1962 Ole Miss team. I think that won the national championship, and then he became their starting quarterback. And actually, in 1966, he couldn't coach the freshman team because they said his hair was too long. But anyway, when he got done with football, mm-hmm. he gravitated. He was a musician and a songwriter. And he moved to Los Angeles. And one of his most famous songs was Midnight Train to Georgia by Gladys Knight and the Pips. Wow. But there's even a better story than that. And again, you read Wikipedia, you wonder how much is true or not, but the story is just too good to pass up. Apparently, he was friends with Lee Majors. They were in some rec football league. And he was calling Lee to ask him something. Who's Lee Majors? Oh, that's a good. <laughs> Lee Majors was a six million dollar man. Fair was uh, I know. The, I know who he is. Yeah, I know <laughs> anyway, and and I he was related to uh, Johnny Majors, who was the coach, uh, head coach. Hmm. But anyway, his girlfriend at the time was Farrah Fawcett. So he calls his house, and Farrah answers the phone, and says, "Oh, is Lee there?" And she says, "No." And he goes, "Where are you going?" And Farrah says, "I'm taking the midnight plane to Houston." And he thinks, "Oh, that's a." Interesting title for a song. So he does a song, 
midnight plane to no Houston, way. and that no. morphs into midnight train to Georgia. So Farrah Fawcett oh. is indirectly responsible. She get a, a co- I don't know. co-writing. It's like a true thing. angel. But I found that fascinating. So. Wow. Yeah. wow. I found it fascinating that Farrah Fawcett was a poster on my wall. Yeah. When I was so I should answer old. the phone. <laughs> You know, when Charlie's Angels debuted, and I was in high school, and we had a project. We had to take a television show, watch the episode, and then mark down all the commercials that were on the show and try to come up with a theme, what market they were looking at. Mm-hmm. So I had to watch the very first episode of Charlie's Angels. You had to? Yeah, I had to. Yeah, I that was that a show. tough one, buddy. I don't know why I did, but I picked it. And so that That's was cool. one of my big memories. Of nice. That's great. Right. And you wrote all about Charlie. I wrote yeah, my plastic pickles. I love his voice. It's very deep. Uh, Billy, you got anything else? Um, I just know uh, University of Kentucky, their football team is normally bad. In 1961, though, they fired their staff. Only a few guys on there that have done anything. Howard Schnellenberger, Don Shula, Bill Arnsbarger, and Chuck Knox all fired. Yeah, because they you know? sucked. Well, but still, you know, that's, that's a lot of talent that's sitting in there, maybe. two Hall of Famers. Yes, and then also the guy that took over for Paul Brown and won an NFL championship. So, which was yeah. a Blanton Collier. Nice. Nice. Good. Kentucky, uh, I don't think they've ever recovered. <laughs> no. No. It's easy uh, to look back, though. And, and, and the, really and the faces in the crowd, uh, we'll finish up with this. A junior from Elk Grove High School in the Sacramento area scored 62 points as his team won their 15th straight game. His name was Bill Cartwright. He would go to USF and then was drafted by the Knicks with the third overall pick in 1979, spending 16 seasons in the NBA, probably best known as being the starting center on Michael Jordan's championship teams from 91 to 93. Had a very good NBA Mm -hmm. career, but look at that, 62 points um, as a 17-year-old junior in high school. I love those faces in the crowd. It's like yeah. my favorite thing to look yeah. back at. Yeah. I actually look up any any of the faces in the crowd. I do a Google search on them to see oh, what they've done. Yeah, and, you so know. far, I'm not finding too many of no, them. No, I found one kid but, from one of the magazines that got elected to like the Handball Hall of Fame. But yeah, you don't usually find yeah. them. Yeah. yeah, but that that's a perfect example there. The Handball Hall of Fame yeah. or something like yeah. that, right? Because these aren't, this is a basketball one. Most of them yeah. are bowling yeah. and yeah. archery yeah. and that kind of stuff. So... All right, that is uh, the February 4th, 1974 issue with with Muhammad Ali. I can't even believe I'm saying this, right? I mean, we're getting to talk about Muhammad Ali, Ali and Joe Frazier, and we get to talk to Mark Cram Jr., who grew up with these guys all around him and his father, the legendary Mark Cram Sr. Go to markcramjr.com. Um, he wrote, once again... Smoking Joe, the life of Joe Frazier. Um, thank you very much, Mark, for joining us today. And uh, until You're next welcome. week. Oh, yeah. I wasn't talking to you. Always you, buddy. You never, oh, the other Mark. Yeah, huh? The one that we... The, M-A-R-K. The one you like. M-A-R-K. The one you like. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. This is the Past Our Prime Podcast. We'll check you next week. Bye-bye. See you later.